Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hello, folks. I'm Scott Postman, joined by Joffrey Swate, and we're your hosts today. Joffrey, how's it going? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to another episode in our series, Odin and Mercury. Odin and Mercury. Today, we're going to talk about, just very simply, what is Socratic dialogue or what is a Socratic discussion? And so that's a real straightforward title, a straightforward theme for our show, but it is related to last week's um, conversation about conversation in the classroom. Right. Yeah, conversation <laughs> about conversation. And y'all have no idea what uh, what a hero's journey uh, we suffered through to arrive at the simple title, <laughs> What is Socratic Dialogue? So I hope you all appreciate the sharpness of that blade. Well, we're going to start by making a clear distinction that uh, Socratic Dialogue, sometimes called Enlinkus, um, we'll get into what that means, is something that is in opposition to or different than, it's not an opposition in goal, but it's a different approach to learning or teaching from didactic, right? Right. And, we, and we're going to obviously define what those are, but it's, it's really important for us to note that they have different effects. So particularly in a mentoring situation, in a classroom situation, one is much more desirable than the other. Yeah, absolutely. So to start with didactic, uh, didaskalos, uh, you're probably familiar with that from hearing from scripture, but the idea of being apt to teach and, and um, uh, teaching from scripture, um, we're told that didactic is, that this is where preaching comes from, the idea of heralding an idea or, or putting it forth as truth. And so didactic is that kind of lecturing um, sort of teaching. This is what it is. Right. And, and, and we're teachers, so we don't say lecturing in a negative way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it's that, you know, and, and preaching is, you know, preaching yeah. is, is not lecturing, but preaching, preaching is also didactic. Basically, it, it, didactic teaching is here's the truth. Bloom. There it Deal is. Deal with it. Yep. Right. <laughs> well, and didactic has a, a particular kind of effect. And, you know, depending on the hearer, uh, depending on the heart and the uh, attitude. And as Christians and the theologians, we would also say, depending on God's work in a person's heart and life, um, then we recognize that didactic is going to have a different effect on different people. For those who are insincere, uh, it's going to have a hardening effect. Right. And those who are sincere, it's going to have a convicting effect that brings about to repentance. Or at least that's the goal. That's the way it should be presented. Right. A great way to think about uh, didactic presentation uh, is street preaching. Right now, few are the street preachers who are uh, hoping to develop you know long term relationships and those back and forth conversations, um, which you know we should as as I think postmodern creatures. That may make us want to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. But no, no, they have a laudable goal, which is making people face the truth, making people react. Yeah, I've heard it called before confrontation in the gate. (laughs) So, you know, taking off the city gates or, you know, where the public square is, you're being confronted with truth. And and when you... Uh, when, when somebody is street preaching or didactic, you're not necessarily, I mean, although you hope that it will have an effect, but it's not always the same kind of effect, but you are presenting the truth. It's out there. This is what it is. Now you have to deal with it. Yeah. Right. Now on the flip side, when we talk about Socratic discussion, one of the ways that Socrates talks about it in a, a dialogue uh, that Plato wrote called uh, Theotetus is the idea of midwifery. 
right? Mm. And so midwifery is a little different than didactic in, in terms of how to draw out something that is already there. And it also implies a particular kind of relationship and a particular kind of um, patient, if you will, right. or student. Yeah, and it's suggesting that this may be a laborious process. <laughs> it can be very laborious. <laughs> so enlankus is a Greek word um, that basically means to challenge or to confront, uh, to show what is wrong. And, and it's the idea that um, you're going to challenge what uh, somebody, uh, some axioms and principles, some belief somebody has, and you challenge them through questioning. And one image that always comes to my mind, we're going to kind of mix metaphors here a little bit. Uh, we'll come Gasp. back to mid. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, to midwifery in a minute, but, but I'm thinking of like an onion, right? And, and Lankis sort of peels off the outer layers until you get closer and closer to the core. And, and the idea is that, that you're just peeling away that that which is not true uh, in that situation. Um, or the way Socrates put it is that a midwife is going to help deliver what has already been conceived, right? So right. this this implies that the student who has midwifery being practiced on them um, has conceived in some way a truth, whether that's through didaskalos or uh, through their own experience. And so it requires that the midwife uh, is able to recognize who's pregnant with truth and who isn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so, so many things spring to mind. I'm not going to say any of them. <laughs> what discipline I'm showing. <laughs> uh, well, you know, in, 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 you know, the, the visual image there obviously is really, um, is telling, but the Socrates, I think uses it because it really does show that in a, Socratic dialogue, it requires a kind of relationship with the student and the teacher. Right. Yes. And, and that relationship is key. I mean, the, the, the onion, the onion image is a truly helpful one because, mm -hmm. you know, okay, so you're, you're going through the layers, but the, the thing it lacks that the birth image has is, is the idea that uh, both agents are participating and that in fact, the more important person for the arrival at the truth is the the one bearing the, the seed right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so the the midwife is is necessary and helpful without her you know the, it's you know she, she's a, she's there for a reason and it may be that there will be no birth without her right, right? she may be absolutely essential but it's about the woman giving birth and she has to bring forth the child. That's right? right. And so the teacher is approaching it that way where it, it, it could be that this would be a stillbirth that the, that the child would not live if the, if the, if the, midwife were not there, if the teacher's not there, the student may never arrive at the truth, but the, the, the student is the essential one. That's right. right? And so you're, you are leading them through the steps to arrive at the truth themselves because they must birth it. And that's a, that's a, it's a super important point that you're making because one of the things that Socrates says about that is that the midwife is someone who is beyond childbearing years, right? So a, a midwife isn't the one who's conceiving right. and bearing children. They have already done so multiple times and they're, uh, you know, older in age. Obviously he's given this 
image of the older age who's helping the younger. And so it implies that the teacher has already had some experience in this whole process, uh, both personally and in helping other people, right? So they're going to help, but they're able to recognize who is actually pregnant with truth, who's right. ready to receive this. And so that requires a kind of attitude on the part of the the midwife. But then as you're pointing out, the idea that the student or the, the one bearing the child has to also be ready to give forth. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the, the teacher, just as the midwife, you know, needs to have, and I can probably come up with a, uh, a more poetic expression given time, but here under pressure, I'm just going to say a professional sympathy. Yeah. Right. You have the sympathy because you've been through these pangs, mm-hmm. right? But you know, this, if, even if the student is pitying himself, you can't fall prey to that. You can be sympathetic, yep. but you have to realize you know, this is, you know, I, I, I remember these pains myself. I remember wanting to give up. Yep. Right. But we have to get this done. And so the teacher can provide that objectivity and that firmness to help the student while being sympathetic. I, I, I love that illustration, and, and I don't want to take this too far away, but it is very uh, apropos to the idea of a coach, right, yeah. and, and, a, and a, uh, somebody, in a, an athlete. So the coach knows what it's like to run that extra wind sprint, you know, but they're not in the moment having to do it. They're the one who's going to be sympathetic and yet challenge the one to keep going, right? And, mm-hmm. and so the midwife's going to be this way with the student. Now, the one of the the ideas of Socratic discussion. Hold on a second. I have yep. to interrupt. The midwife is going to be this way with the student. Talk about mixed metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> the midwife is going to be this way with the patient. The teacher is going to be this way with the student. I'm sorry. We all understood you, but I, I loved that moment anyway. Oh, uh, that's a perfect moment. All right. So here, uh, you know, there's so many metaphors we're using. Yeah. And what about an onion? <laughs> We're having way too much fun. Too much fun. Let's stop. (laughs) Okay. So this um, process requires that somebody is skilled, is a master. And so this is what makes Socratic dialogue different than just a conversation. It is a conversation. Yeah. So let's uh, stop. Let's pause here for a moment. This is what makes Socratic dialogue different from a didactic presentation. Yes. And it makes it different from just a regular old conversation as well. It is. Yes. Now, a good midwife teacher (laughs) can make the experience seem less intimidating and painful and more like a conversation, but there's some very intentional things um, happening, right? Yes. And I think, I think one of them is the classic, is that what you think? Tell me more. <laughs> I, I Sorry, that. that was probably a, a too, too a sarcastic a tone. But they, well, you know, that moment when the, when the student says something and you you realize that if, if they unpack it themselves, they're probably going to want to backtrack. They're going to. Yes. So you let them unpack it you themselves. And, and Socrates is famous for for two components that went with this in Lancus, and that is uh, irony, Socratic irony, we call mm-hmm. it. And then there's also his feigned ignorance, you know, the yes, tell yes. me. When I read, uh, when I read these stories uh, of, of Socrates, that's the part that kind of gets to me. I, I, I just, like, if I had been there, how annoyed would I have been? You know, <laughs> no wonder he was the gadfly yeah, of Apex. Exactly. Right? Well, I, you know, as, as a teacher, I always, you know, there is a, a Christian aspect to it where we want to take the, 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 the I, I want to want to use the irony in a way that, that makes the kid feel stupid. Don't right? be, don't 
don't be a gadfly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but but you do want to help them, and and it's it happens so frequently where a student has a you know they're really sure of themselves and they've they've got a, an idea and a, and and it's great they're they're yes. they're participating so you don't want to quell that, but then it's you know you start asking questions like well this you know that's an interesting idea I've never thought about that before you know. You have, but yeah. you know, not thought about it like this. And, and so can you explain what you mean by, you know, and then you start asking questions and allow them to unpack it. And this is such a valuable process because the student may even have arrived at a correct conclusion or a good yes. or a just conclusion, uh, but they should see how they got there. Yeah. And you may even realize as, as the conversation is happening that they got there badly. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and so even just, just just the process itself is enormously valuable. Want to throw in another metaphor? A stop, <laughs> a, you know, a stopped watch is, is correct twice a yes, day. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the idea is sometimes students do get the right answer, but they got there the wrong way. And right. part of the Enlankus process is to help them to think about that because making that same mistake, they may have stumbled across the truth and come to that conclusion, but they can't defend it. Right. And, and th- th- this process based I think a good way of thinking of, of it in a nutshell is that uh, this process breaks down the Sunday school answer. Yes. Because Jesus is usually the right. answer. <laughs> <We> have, <laughs> Why is Jesus the answer? I, I often tell my students, and I have to qualify this because it, it, it can sound confusing, but I often tell them, okay, as we get into this conversation, I'm going to ask you to suspend your not your Christian worldview, but suspend it for a moment. Um, you know, because it may be apparent having you know knowing what the Scripture says about this. But let's try to walk through this in a reasoning way, so that you can understand how we reason. You know, how people reason about these things. But you want to handle this thing. You know, and and just suspend it for a moment, because then if as we walk through it, you'll recognize the error, the fallacy that's right. there, and then we can apply the principle back again. You know, this is such an important way of of pursuing education uh, for a couple of reasons, for many reasons, for two that I will mention now. Uh, one is to prepare your child for being out in the world, being yep. in college. Right? Why do I think the things that I think? Uh, but another one is to prepare them to love. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. To be able to have sympathy and empathy for a non-believer who is right. being honest with them. Yes. Right. If you can't conceive of how this honest unbeliever across the table from you is arriving at their conclusions, we have a problem. How right. can you love that person right now? And and that's practice. We, we're loving <laughs> in some ways. We love the characters. Uh, as practice, we're loving the characters that Socrates or Plato or, or interact, their interlocutors, you know, by listening to what they have to say, or even in the great books conversation, we're listening to what these people humbly hearing what they have to say. And then we probably will come to the Sunday school answer eventually, right. but we want to come by it honestly. Well, we were talking before the show that we should have some examples of what this might look like. And I think one of the easiest maybe to point to uh, Plato's Republic, because uh, one of these conversations on justice takes place all in book one or Mm. most of it. And then he spends the other seven books basically unpacking, you know, all the ramifications and implications of this, but they're, uh, they're approaching. He, he approaches a house of one named Cephalus and uh, well, he's approached by Cephalus's son, Polemicus. 
And um, there's a lot of illusions in, in, I don't want to get too far into unpacking the Republic. There's a lot of illusions there. He goes down to the Piraeus. And if you know anything about the geography, that's a, it's a seaport of Athens. And the whole idea is it's a very democratic place. Mm. Okay. And that's important. So they're introducing a new God to the city and they're going down there to the festival and see what it's about. And so he's arrested by Polemicus, taken back to Cephalus, his father's house, you know, and, and arrested by saying, Stay with us. Come talk to us. Tell us more about your philosophy and these kinds of things. So he asked Kephalus, he's <laughs> here's his gadfly. Kephalus is this old man. He is um, uh, he is a, a not an Athenian, but but he's a person like a, a natural or a, what do they call it? A, naturalized. A, yeah, naturalized citizen. So he's he's there and uh, he's a merchant, but he's really old now. And so Socrates says, "Hey, Kephalus." What's it like to get old? <laughs> tell, tell, tell me about old age. Do you, you know, do you think about dying? You know, since you're, since you're at this place in your life where you're about to kick the bucket any day, tell us about it. I mean, so this is the kind of thing that he does, you know, pretty rude. So Kefla says, well, you know, um, you, you, there's a lot of things uh, that, you know, the passions, you know, wane. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. And you can focus on more contemplative kinds of things. And then he says, so what's it like having money when you're old? Is that helpful? He said, well, you can, you know, pay fellow man. You can die knowing that you've paid your debts to your fellow man and you've paid what you owe to the gods. And so you're right with man and right with the gods. And, and so it's good. He said, okay, is that your definition of justice? So he sets him up, right? And so he's like, well, if that's what you say, but I'm going to turn this conversation over to Polemicus. Right. So Polemicus says, no, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to kind of uh, change what my dad said a little bit. And, and I'm going to say, being good to your friends and uh, evil to your enemies, right? So that's the definition of justice. Mm -hmm. So then Socrates asks, so then what's a friend? And what's an enemy? So you can see, you can begin to see how he starts unpacking the definitions of these different things because then Polemicus is, um, you know, first of all, Cephalus's breakdown because he says you pay, if justice is paying a man what you owe him, what happens if the man says, here's my weapon, uh, would you hold it for me? And then he comes back in the middle of the night, wild-eyed and crazy, saying, I'm going to kill somebody, give me my weapon. Are you just by giving him what belongs to him? You know, so he, he challenges him there. Then he challenges, who's your friend, who's your enemy? Another fellow jumps in by the name of Thrasymachus, and I'm just kind of working quickly. And he said, no, no, justice is nothing more than the advantage of the stronger. So whoever's mm -hmm. in power, they get to, you know, might makes right. You know, none of this is connecting with me as a denizen of the 21st century. <laughs> right? We don't see any of this happening. Um, and, and while I'm not necessarily giving you all of the questions that he asked, yes. what, what I want to point out in it, trying to do this in a short order, is to say that he's challenging each of their um, – assumptions and then he begins and goes through a dialogue with him to unpack and then they're like uh well maybe the, you need to talk to this guy <laughs> you uh -huh. know and we keep switching characters because nobody can come up with an answer because socrates keeps challenging their definitions he challenges their comparisons he challenges every aspect of what they believe and here's part of what the midwife does remember the midwife can never conceive she's beyond childbearing he never tells them what he believes Right. You know, so one of the fun things about a teacher is, and this is what he gets criticized for, but one of the things that's fun about a teacher is 
uh, is leading debates over issues in class. Yes. And, and, and seeing the value of that process. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. And, you know, and as, as you're telling that story, you know, several times different parables of Jesus, you know, uh, popped in. And I think you know, one of you know, this is just a side comment, but one of the great benefits of, of educating this way is, is learning how to handle the scriptures and learning how to handle the scriptures in a sympathetic way. Cause you know, one of the, one of the, the things that often comes up, you know, is similar to, to this, this Socratic, you know, um, these Socratic challenges that, that you were just, just presenting is, you know, we, we have such built in utilitarian majoritarian mm -hmm. assumptions uh, that very often, even even Christians and, and Christian teenagers um, are constantly making assumptions that if you simply ask them to imagine what it would be like on the outside, everything has to be redefined. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. you have to confront the fact that you've just been thinking about what's best for the majority. But, but what if you're not the majority now? What is justice now? What now is, it actually has an edge to it, right? Exactly. You know, that's the what in democracy the two sheep or two wolves and a sheep, right? Exactly. <laughs> I don't want to be the sheep. Well, here's something interesting. You brought up, you know, handling scripture and 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 you know justice, and we have the scriptural. But um, just as a teacher, um, I think um, if if my counting and and research is accurate, Jesus asked three in the Gospels alone. He asked three hundred and seven questions. And he doesn't answer them all the time. He doesn't. He leaves many of the, you know, but he, he raises these questions to his disciples, yeah. to the, to the, to the people. And he asks questions because he puts them in a position to, if they unpack and, and they're, even if they don't answer it honestly, publicly, they have to unpack it in their own mind and recognize, oh, you know, so is John the Baptist, is his baptism from heaven or not? You know, and now you're leaving. Well, if we answer it this way, this happens. Yeah, right. If we answer it that way, this happens. <laughs> that is a kind of enlankus. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, I love the, the, the birthing uh, metaphor. And this is, uh, again, a, t a total side comment, but, uh, you know, I've been wanting to, to tell you since uh, so, yeah, I had the thought several minutes ago. But did you know that in uh, more than one romance language, the way to say give birth is not to give birth but rather to give light interesting isn't that cool yeah. say more <laughs> that's all i've got for you like the you know in spanish or portuguese and probably in some other iberian languages but uh you know that's uh you know if in scripture when mary gives birth you know and it, but but it's it just in in the common parlance that's what a woman does gives she light. gives light that is a fabulous yeah. that is a fabulous <laughs> thing to know I, I am so glad you share that i did not know that and so i'm not being flattered but wow does that not like speak to what we're talking about yeah absolutely right? yeah so to give birth is to give light oh maybe we should end there on a beautiful poetic image <laughs> it's great well i hope you are able to practice and it does take practice right yes it uh, does. so i hope you've enjoyed it we've enjoyed talking about it lots more to say but we'll leave you on that note so long everyone bye-bye